The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, it's time to open uh, the scriptures together. Let me now, for the first time, invite you to open up to the gospel according to Luke. In the New Testament, it's on page 855. If you need a Bible, grab one from the rack in front of you. Uh, We begin in the month of September, uh, turning to a, a new sermon series in the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel according to Luke. We're looking at just the first four verses this morning as we begin uh, this uh, series of studies. And uh, I'll just say to you by way of introduction uh, a couple of things. First of all, um, it's, it's well documented both in uh, uh, Christian art and Christian history that the four gospel accounts are oftentimes represented by four different images or creatures that oftentimes Christian art depicts, and that's because uh, they are representative of what the book of Revelation calls the four living creatures. But the book of Matthew is often depicted as an angel uh, with an emphasis on the kingdom of heaven. The gospel of Mark is oftentimes depicted as a lion uh, with Jesus the conqueror. Uh, The gospel according to John is always depicted the living creature of the gospel of John is an eagle. Uh, because of John's emphasis of a theological astuteness, he soars above the heights. So Matthew, the angel, Mark, the lion, John, the eagle, Luke is an ox. Luke is an ox, that animal which is steady and strong and resolute with an emphasis on Christ the sacrifice uh, for the world, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And so Luke is depicted as the ox. So we come to the gospel according to Luke, uh, the ox. And in this, I want to uh, make another introductory distinguishing comment here that sometimes uh, it can be confusing when we use interchangeably the word gospels with an S and gospel. Gospels and gospel. Why do we do that? Well, let's distinguish between the gospel the good news of the message of salvation found in the person and work of Jesus Christ, His birth, His life, His suffering, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His return, which is the core message of Scripture, that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever trusts in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the good news of the Gospel with a capital G. No S. Gospel. And we distinguish the Gospel from Gospel accounts or gospels, those four books that give the content and context for that unfolding message telling about the life and ministry, the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus. These gospel accounts explain the significance of Jesus, each from a very unique perspective as they see the same event from four different sides. The metaphor I always give about this is that if you could imagine a car accident happening and four people on four corners of the intersection, they see the same thing from different perspectives. And so as they give their police reports, their point of perspective and frame of reference will differ from each other as they give the same story from their varied accounts. So it is with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John who are telling the story of the life and ministry of Jesus with their unique emphases. So it is the good news of Jesus told in the Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now we come to the Gospel according to Luke. The good news of Jesus as told from Luke's 
perspective. So here's the main point this morning. There is one clear main point that Luke writes his gospel account. He wrote an orderly account for you to be certain of the truth of Jesus. Luke writes an orderly account for you and I to be certain of the truth of Jesus. So let me ask you, what are you certain about? What are you absolutely confident about in your life? Details, big and small, that you are absolutely certain of. Some people think it's far too arrogant to be certain of things. Some people are turned off by people who are far too confident or certain about every such thing. And there are other people who think that being certain about certainty is wrong. And we shouldn't be so certain about anything. Living in ambiguity all the time. But Luke wants you to be certain about Jesus. Luke wants you, living where you live, when you live, and the ways in which you live, to be certain of the truth of Jesus. As certain as you are as the seat that you are sitting in, Luke wants you to be certain of Jesus. Luke wants you to be as confident and assured about Jesus Christ as you are that you live and breathe right now. That's what Luke wants, and that's why he writes. So let's pray as we ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures and see it together. Gracious God, we pause now, uh, turning to the Gospel according to Luke, and we thank You, Father, that You give to us the Scriptures by divine inspiration, that as the Holy Spirit so inspired Luke to record these words for us, we pray now that that same Spirit, that eternal Spirit of, of who You are, would rest upon us as we read in the 21st century words written 2,000 years ago. And so, Father, come now by Your Spirit to show us Christ and seal our hope that is in Him. Lord, bless now the reading and hearing and proclamation of Your Word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear the Word of God, Luke chapter 1 and verse 1 in the first four verses. This is the Word of God. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. May He write eternal truth on our hearts. Stay in Luke. Stay in Luke. And we will be here for, for some time. Why did Luke write? Luke wrote an orderly account for you to be certain of the truth of Jesus. And so what we want to do is uh, introduce ourselves to this gospel account and get into what we call the preface of this text, these first four verses, as we learn about this orderly account, this gospel according to Luke. So, who is Luke? Uh, who is Luke and, and why did he write this book? You might be interested to know actually that the gospel according to Luke is actually technically an anonymous account, meaning Luke never says, I wrote this, my name is Luke, I am the writer of this gospel. Luke never identifies himself, but there are other points in the New Testament that give evidence to the fact that the Luke 
who is a companion of Paul on his missionary journeys, is the same Luke who wrote the Gospel according to Luke. And this might seem like a pedantic thing. It might seem like a very obvious thing. You say, well, who wrote the Gospel according to Luke? Well, the answer is Luke. But why, why does it even matter to stop and think about it? Because principle to an attempt to undermine confidence in the Bible is an attempt to ask at every juncture, how can you know that? How do you know that that's true? How do you know that Luke wrote Luke? In an attempt to undermine the fact that Luke the physician wrote Luke's gospel according to himself. Well, we know that because uh, from Colossians 4 and uh, Philemon 24 and 2 Timothy 2, the Apostle Paul identifies his companion as Luke, the beloved physician. Identified as a physician, suggesting that he is himself an educated man, which actually explains something very unique. If you look at these first four verses, this is one sentence. All four of these verses make one run-on sentence in Greek, the original language of the New Testament, where he explains his precise research and reporting with this very elevated grammar. You may be interested to know in some kind of uh, very uh, uh, sharp detail that the grammatical and linguistic style of the first four verses of the book of Luke are different from the rest of the book. The first four verses of Luke's gospel are written in what we would call classical Greek, and from verse 5 of chapter 1 through the rest of the book are written in common Greek to display the fact that Luke is an educated man who writes in this very academic style in the first four verses and then transitions to common Greek of telling the narrative. And interestingly, in 24 chapters of Luke's Gospel, and then in the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, Luke never mentions his name one time. He is content to humble himself and stand behind the obvious focus of his writing, which is Jesus Christ. Luke wants you to read his gospel and not think about Luke, but rather think about Jesus. He is writing in the late 50s or early 60s before the death of the Apostle Paul. And the text today in the first four verses are what we call the prologue to Luke. This is his introductory comments, his defense of his writing, which is actually a common feature in historical accounts of the first century where philosophers and theologians and historians of the ancient world uh, would give introductory comments about their writing, like uh, the Greek historian Herodotus or Thucydides or the Jewish historian Josephus all began their writings with this prologue preamble saying why they are writing what they are writing. So does Luke here in God's word of the gospel according to Luke. And he says what he is writing is that just as those who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered to us, so Luke intends now to deliver to you. Luke is emphasizing here in this prologue that this is a historical accounting of real events in history. He writes as one who was himself an eyewitness and had personal connections with other eyewitnesses. Again, he was a companion of the Apostle Paul, rubbed shoulders with the Apostle Peter, and the other disciples, now designated apostles. Luke's account is eyewitness testimony and received from prior eyewitness sources. And he says, this is well-researched. 
Luke is not the college student who writes the term paper the night before it's due, in other words. He's the one who meticulously and with great detail in well-researched conclusions reports to you the facts and the realities of who Jesus is. Look again at verse 2 as he says, Just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. You know, uh, people oftentimes assume that the Bible just drops out of the sky. That the Bible just falls down out of heaven in a completed form of 66 books or was compiled in some sort of conspiracy by the early church. And nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible, especially in the New Testament, is externally verifiable, internally consistent, non-contradictory accounts that bear the weight of the burden of proof the New Testament holds under the weight of the greatest degrees of historical scrutiny, whether you are evaluating sacred works or secular works, it bears the weight of historical inquiry to decide whether or not Luke is telling the truth. And he says, I accept the responsibility of that weight. This is important because an intellectually honest person must come to terms with the fact that people reject Christianity not because they can undermine it, but because they don't like it. You cannot undermine the historical veracity of the New Testament and its witness of Jesus, and so because it cannot be undermined, it's just wholesale dismissed because people don't like it. Luke is saying, the things that I'm going to say to you are received from eyewitness are written down with such care and accuracy so that you can be confident that it is true. Because if the Christian faith is based on myth and fairy tale, it's not worth your time. If the New Testament is based on a game of telephone and a so-and-so heard from such-and-such like a, like a chain of gossip, then it's not worth your trust. But if it can be verified, if it's internally consistent and accurate and bears the weight, then it's worth your time. Luke says, I spoke to eyewitnesses. I carefully investigated the details. Researched from the beginning actual history, exact truth with historical details. Think about, just for a moment, when people think about the Gospel of Luke, they usually think about Christmas and they think about Luke chapter 2. And if you think about Luke chapter 2, if you look ahead of that very quickly, we'll get there eventually. But when Luke writes and says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This happened when Quirinius was governor of Syria. He's saying, you can verify what I'm saying because you can know the timetable in which this real history happened within. If Luke was writing fantasy, he wouldn't record historical details like those things. Real people, real places, real verifiable history. And that's because the good news of Jesus is not based on once upon a time. It's not a fairy tale. And Luke wants you to be confident of it. So as we approach the gospel according to Luke, we should know some details of the emphasis that Luke has in mind as he, from his particular corner of the intersection, to use that metaphor again, has a particular way that he wants to tell the story of Jesus to you so that you can receive the truth of Jesus. Luke will emphasize in the Gospel according to Luke this emphasis of Jesus as the one who is rejected. 
that there is a class of people who reject Jesus and there is a class of people who is used to themselves being rejected by the same people who reject Jesus. He himself identifies with those who are rejected. He himself is scorned and identifies with those who are scorned and rejected in their lives as Jesus lifts up the downcast and casts away those who reject him. Jesus is emphasized as the rejected, suffering prophet. Luke is also emphasizing how the story of Jesus is not an isolated story, but it is the whole story of the whole Bible with Jesus as the center. As Luke tells the story of salvation, where salvation doesn't just mean your forgiveness of your personal sins, but rather God's salvation of all of the cosmos and everything that He has created, including the people that live in the world, namely you. Luke means salvation in a grand sense, not just personal salvation, as the historical, eternal plan of God unfolds from the ages, and Luke is connecting the Old Testament with the New Testament to speak of God's purposes, to draw everything together in Jesus Christ, who is at the center of all history, and who is at the center of the lives of those who trust in Him, and He wants you to trust in Jesus, and He wants you to put Jesus at the center of your life too. That's the emphasis with which Luke is writing. And there are some unique features of the Gospel of Luke that are interesting as well. The most interesting unique feature of Luke is that Luke is the only Gospel account that has a part two. Matthew, Mark, and John write a Gospel narrative, but Luke writes volume two because the Gospel, according to Luke, the same author who writes that, Luke writes the book of Acts. So Luke and Acts are written by the same person. And Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. And if we take Luke's authorship of Acts, which is the second longest book in the New Testament, then Luke himself accounts for 27.5% of the New Testament, one author, which is more than all of Paul's 13 letters, as Paul's letters make up 23.5% of the New Testament. So Luke bears a significant consequence on the whole testimony of the New Testament, as 27.5% of the New Testament is written by Luke under divine inspiration. The Gospel according to Luke has more parables than any other Gospel, 33 of them, of which 14 are completely unique to the Gospel according to Luke, meaning you won't find, for example, the prodigal son in Matthew or Mark or John. Luke tells 14 of his 33 parables as totally unique as he records Jesus' teaching them. So if I were to ask you what your favorite gospel is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, I wonder if you would be inclined to give an answer or not, and I'd be curious how many of you might say Luke. Well, uh, maybe after some time now, you would be inclined to say how much you enjoy Luke's gospel, which is certainly my hope. So what, what does Luke want you to get out of his gospel account? What does Luke want you to take away? He wants you to be certain of the truth of Jesus. Look again at verse 4. He says that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now that's in the context actually of a dedication. Also unique about Luke is that he dedicates his gospel accounts to a particular person in verse 3, Theophilus. Luke is writing to Theophilus 
so that he would have an orderly account and that he can have certainty about the things that he has taught. So who is Theophilus? And the answer is, uh, we don't really know. Luke obviously knew him and wrote to him, but we don't know that much about him. Uh, he does address him, though, interestingly, at the end of verse 3, as most excellent Theophilus. Look at that address again. Most excellent Theophilus. And that seems like a, a unique term, and uh, maybe you don't talk to your friends that way, call each other most excellent, or maybe you should if you watch 80s movies or whatever. Uh, you don't address each other in this way. But Paul does address people this way in the book of Acts that Luke writes, when Luke speaks to the Roman Emperor Felix in Acts 23 or Festus in Acts 26, the Apostle Paul addresses the Emperor as most excellent. So there's a clue in this that Theophilus is some kind of Roman official, some kind of uh, a high-ranking person in government or an admired friend of Luke or somebody for whom it was strategic for Luke to have Theophilus be convinced of the Christian faith, or we could assume that Theophilus is the one who funds Luke's research and writing, that he bankrolls the project, in other words. But based on Luke's comment that the purpose of the book was to confirm Theophilus, verse 4, in the things that he has been taught, we can conclude that for whoever Theophilus is, he seems to be a Christian. And if he is a Roman official Christian, then it's likely the fact that he is a new Christian believer and that the confidence he needs to continue in the Christian faith is not just important for him as an individual, but important for the first century church to have some kind of strategic partnership with a high-ranking official who was sympathetic to the cause of Christ as he himself learned to follow Jesus. So he's likely Roman official, recent convert, and he is writing to confirm Theophilus and others in their Christian faith by presenting a historical account of the historical Jesus, the real man who really lived in the first century. And that mattered then, and it matters now. It mattered then because Luke is aware of the tensions that Theophilus would face in his life as a Greek-speaking Christian believer. Between Greco-Roman religions and philosophies and Judaism, uh, much like today, there would have been plenty of perspectives on life and its purposes. That Luke lived in a world and Theophilus lived in the world of the first century that was not so much different than our world. And sometimes we can really do a disservice to ourselves by making the assumption, well, that was 2,000 years ago. It's nothing like the world today. When in reality, the same worldview pressures that you have in your life and in the life of your family and of your children and your grandchildren are the same pressures that were present in the first century where there were people telling them the purpose of life is this, the purpose of life is pleasure, the purpose of life is the advancement of your own name and the strategic gaining of as many earthly possessions as you could get, and you are whoever you say you are, and you can do whatever you want and fill in the blank. That was just as true 2,000 years ago as it is today, except it's way more inventive and creative today, it seems. This notion of radical autonomy and you can do whatever you want and be whoever you are and say whatever you want about yourself rather than learning to see yourself under the lens of God's sovereign providence according to His Word. And Luke wants us 
who live in the midst of this diverse world to see this reality that Jesus is not one option among other acceptable options for the purpose of your life. He is the purpose of life. He is not just one worldview on a buffet of options of philosophies and worldviews. He is the way, the truth, and the life. This could not be more relevant to us in this age. In a world in which, again, you yourselves and your children and your grandchildren are barraged constantly to make decisions about who they are and what's important and what they live for. Luke says, I want you to answer that question with Jesus. With Jesus. The Christian faith is reasonable. The Christian faith is historical. And Luke says, I want you to have certainty about your Christian faith. As he says, as, again in verse 1, inasmuch have taken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. What does he mean there? What are the things that are accomplished among us? This, this Greek verb here, accomplished, is emphatic. It means to fulfill completely or to convince fully. And the stuff that has been accomplished among us, Luke is saying, is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God and Savior of sinners. That His life, His teaching, His compassion, His suffering, His dying, His rising, His ascension is the center point of all history. And history knows it, right? Otherwise, why do we call things B.C. and A.D.? Before Christ and Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Except when I was in college, that was changed from B.C. to B.C.E. And from A.D. to C.E., changing the language from before Christ and Anno Domini to uh, the common era and before the common era. Because although a secularizing world wants to insist that it is not true, Jesus Christ is the center of all history. We date our calendars in accord with it. We operate with the reality that Jesus is at the center, and yet many people live their lives as if that is not true. But so it is true. Everything that has come before has been prologue, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Davis, David, all leading to Jesus Christ, the things that have been accomplished among us. And the point of application for this, as we conclude uh, this original prologue here, the point of application is this. What Luke has to say about Jesus is truth that you and I need to know about Jesus. Luke doesn't say anything that is of not eternal consequence for you. There's nothing in Luke that we can just scan past and say that doesn't really matter and flip through that. Everything that Luke says is truth that we need to know. But you might say, well, I've read Luke before and I like Luke. To which you would say, you need to know it better. We do not live in a world, brothers and sisters, in which less Bible is the answer. We do not live in a world where less Knowledge of Scripture is needed. More is needed. A confirmation of the things maybe that you have believed your entire life and yet you still need to grow into. Grow into the confidence. Grow into the certainty, which is why Luke writes, so that the things that you have been taught, you can be certain of. 
What we should draw from this is that Luke wants you as a Christian to have confidence, to have assurance. Where does your Christian assurance come from? What is it based on? For some people, they think assurance of their faith is based on experiences, good experiences and uh, high experiences or low experiences perhaps. Or they think that their Christian assurance is uh, coming from other people. How they live their Christian life shapes your confidence of the Christian faith. Or your experience of events will shape your confidence of the Christian faith. But look, you know that your experiences are subjective. You go up the mountain, come down from the mountain, and just because you have a good day today doesn't mean that tomorrow won't be difficult. If your assurance of faith is based off of experiences, then your assurance will wax and wane. If the assurance of your Christian faith is based on other people, they will inevitably let you down. Because even the most sincere people among us are still sinners at best. Our assurance is not based off of experiences. Our experiences are not based off of other people. Your Christian assurance is based off of Christ from the Scriptures. And that's where Luke wants you to be assured from, which is why he writes. Again, we don't live in a world in which we need less Bible. We need more objective truth of reality. So Luke is writing so that you can have assurance as you look to Christ. So Lord willing, that's exactly what we intend to do as we walk alongside with uh, the physician Luke to see an orderly account of Jesus Christ and be assured of the faith that is in Him. And let me say to you, if you know people who need to know about Jesus and you're scared to tell them, or you have a hard time putting it to words, there is nothing better to expose people to the truth of Jesus than to expose people to the teaching of the Scriptures. So let me encourage you to bring others along with you and along with us as we see Christ in the book of Luke. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Scriptures. We thank You that by Your divine inspiration You give to human authors the means to record Your Word without error to us. And so, Lord, teach us in this season from the book of Luke as we look to Jesus together, who is the basis of our assurance of faith. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.